Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at Houston's bar and restaurant scene. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. We have Scott Snodgrass and Clayton Garrett from Logue Agronomics and Chef Fest coming up in a little bit. But first, I am joined by my co-host, local restaurant consultant Nathan Ketchum. Nathan, welcome back to the show. How are you? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. Normally, you call me, uh, I think, co-host, friend, and uh, local restaurant consultant. What I do to lose a friend? You blew me off. Uh, you blew me off for brunch on Sunday. Yeah, well, that's what you get. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. That's just the way it works. Yeah, I see. One thing, I get to, I lose a title. Yep, that's how it goes. All right. All right, let's dive into the news of the week. I think the buzziest thing that's happening right now in the Houston food world is that we are basking in the media spotlight of David Chang's new Netflix series, Ugly Delicious. It premiered on Netflix last week, and it features Houston in episode four which is titled Shrimp and Crawfish, but is uh, covers a wide range of topics uh, for our purposes, maybe most relevant to the way that New Orleans is a very traditional city in the way that it serves food. And Houston is a very not traditional city in that it has embraced its immigrant communities and allowed their influence to change traditional cuisine. Uh, Nathan, I, I gave you an assignment to watch the episode of ugly delicious what did you think uh professor yes i uh, um i did watch it uh i really enjoyed the the episode a lot actually it had its uh kind of really cool moments had some weird moments had some fun moments it was not what i expected it seemed like a really deeply personal either episode or or show since i've only watched the one episode i can't say whether it's the show or the episode to um chang uh but it was really cool it was, it was nice to see houston portrayed in such a cool light it, it was interesting to see um new orleans kind of called out for a few things that i wasn't expecting um and uh man it was really pro houston and not necessarily pro new orleans in terms of uh, crawfish at least yeah i think at one point david chang says the food in new orleans should taste like the food in houston and they get, I mean, they get called out for all kinds of things. Not, not adopting via Cajun crawfish, not adopting the banh mi when they're still very uh, wedded to the po' boy. Uh, I, I think maybe the funniest, the single funniest moment for me was to see uh, Josh Martinez pop up as a waiter at Galatoire's because he had been uh, the proprietor of a couple of different restaurants over the years. Uh, the Chicken Ranch, Goro and Gun, the Modular Food Truck, so... He'd kind of fallen off the the foodie radar. He pops up on screen in a tux. It's like, uh, I know that guy. Yeah, I've heard the the hey Josh is on this uh, this episode. I didn't I didn't realize how much he was featured on it either. I had just heard oh he's a he's a server, uh, but he had a good like five minutes of screen time. He had a couple. Yeah, he drives the narrative in some ways because he yeah he really did. He gives David Chang the signature quote, which is that you know. No one in New Orleans has the balls to to serve this style of crawfish. Yeah, 
it was uh, it was really cool. And I thought I thought Chris and Justin and uh, Trong Win from uh, Crawfish and Noodles came off very well. Very good ambassadors for the city. Yeah, you know what? Uh, Chris was fantastic on the show. He really was. He came across great. He came across like he was auditioning for his own show. Uh, he came across really well. Um, and I got to tell you, the one of the scenes that stuck out to me was, and th- this is me personally, um, when he was cooking that pork on his pit, and David Chang was like, how are we going to flip it? And he one-handed flipped that pork that gave like chefs across the U.S. boners. It was insane. <laughs> uh, the, the amount of jealousy I have for that pig. For a, a, a whole pig cooker that can be flipped with one with, hand. With one hand lever uh, is insane. Well, I think, he's a, I think he's a pit maker guy, so you can probably inquire with them about whether they built that for him, and if so, how much it would cost to acquire one. Yeah, how many kidneys I would need to sell to buy it, yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing, you know, Justin Yu doesn't do a lot of television, so, you know, he's a, he's a more low-key personality than, than Chris Shepard is, but I thought he comes off well. That, that sequence at uh, Nam Gao in particular, uh, a restaurant that it's been a long time since my last meal there, and, and I need to... I need to change that quickly. And I think I think just judging on the reaction I've seen on social media, a lot of people feel that way. Yeah, he came across as like a, a really good proponent of the city, very passionate. Um, and then the the kind of speech that the the owner uh, gives uh, while they're while they're eating about how, you know, in 1975, the Vietnam, you know, refugees gave uh, egg rolls uh, to their uh uh, neighbors to try to um, uh, yeah to try to bridge the gap culturally to try to to be to be accepted by their new neighbors yeah uh, and that food was how the Vietnamese uh, you know incorporated themselves into Houston that's how they show love and his restaurant is a thank you to the community it was really really cool really good moment of the show uh, another thing I really liked about the show is. It wasn't a uh, Guy Fieri show where he just lets people cook and then says everything is great. Uh, David Chang was calling people out saying, like, hey, your cooking method is stupid. And oh, yeah. Was, when the, in New Orleans, really that, guy, uh, that guy dumps all the ice in the crab. He's like, I'm not stealing that. Yeah. Uh, which it was stupid. But it's just great to see to see a chef be like, no, that, that's wrong. Don't do that. Well, and I, I asked Justin... Uh, he stir fries some crawfish and underbelly for them, and I asked Justin what it was like, and he admitted it's it's better. It tasted better. No, oh, that's interesting. So he he suggested that there might be like a, a patio series or maybe like a, a happy hour thing at Theodore Rex where he stir fries some crawfish, so we can see how that goes. Yeah, I feel like the uh, stir frying that Chinese, you know, that scene when they're in China and they get all that stir fried uh, Szechuan. Uh, crawfish looks great. I loved how you know David Chang couldn't handle the spice. That was great. Uh, well, yeah, there was an epic ton of Sichuan peppercorns in there. I'm sure I couldn't handle that spice either. Oh yeah, well, I don't think any normal person could. Uh, but uh, I think one of the issues with stir frying is just keeping up with the demand in a in a normal crawfish restaurant in a city like Houston or or New Orleans. Right. It's a totally impractical way to cook. The quantity of crawfish that people eat when they go to a restaurant and have crawfish. Yeah. Um, 
so I, I I'm in the I'm in the fry boat. Um. <laughs> I like it boiled. I mean, you know, I understand why what people like about fried, but I I like the process of peeling them. There's there's just part of the ritual. Yeah. And then we get that little glimpse of the future when he goes to Saigon and meets the woman who's inventing Vietnamese Viet Cajun with the river prawns and the herbs and the, but the yeah Vietnamese with the Cajun spices and the the Vietnamese herbs. Uh, when I talked to Chris Shepard, he said that he's been in contact with that woman, and she's thinking about coming back to Houston. So that food to me looked like the best food served in the entire episode. Right. It looked fantastic. The that you know uh, Vietnam um, stew. What was a uh, Creole? Um, uh, what was the stew she made? The the Creole stew. I'm blanking here. I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, you don't mean like gumbo or something? Yeah, she she made Vietnamese gumbo. Oh, okay. Yeah, Sorry. see, that's the word I was going for. Uh, it just looked fantastic. She made a whole mess of things that just looked amazing. I think something like that in Houston. Oh, it would kill. It would blow it away. Yeah, it's it's an interesting show in that, as you said, it's not really about food. It's not, you know, it's not chef's table with long lingering shots of the careful preparation and the elegant plating. It, it really is about the way that people relate to food and what food says about culture. And it really has David Chang's perspective and opinions throughout uh, maybe not quite as political as Anthony Bourdain has become with Parts Unknown, but but certainly uh, less food-obsessed than most food shows, especially on Netflix. So uh, I will say I have watched all eight episodes. Uh, they are all really, really good. In particular, I like the fried chicken episode and uh, the pizza episode. Is uh, The first one is just phenomenal. Yeah, I'm definitely going to start to watch the rest. Uh, as an aside, I will say that if uh, people were actually getting crawfish the size of the crawfish that was shown in that episode, then a lot more people would like crawfish. Yeah, I, there's that sequence where Allison Cook from The Chronicle is eating the crawfish, and they are almost like mini lobsters. They are so big. Uh, I will say I had crawfish at a restaurant a couple weeks ago. Uh, they were not that big. They were, they were pretty small. Uh, of course, the season's off to a little bit of a late start. Uh, it didn't really stop me, but they are it. They were very carefully. That was a that was a little bit of editing for TV, right? They're very careful, careful about what they chose to feed her. Yeah, they looked beautiful. All right, let's move on. Uh, not really news exactly, but uh, kind of an update on news that came out last year, which is that. The Houston Farmers Market, better known as the Caninos Market at Airline and 610, has new ownership and that that company, MLB Capital Partners, has an ambitious plan to transform what is an admittedly kind of shabby space into uh, a more cleaned up version of itself uh, with better traffic flow, more air conditioning, more covered pavilions. Uh, dedicated restaurants, better bathrooms, children's play areas, better parking, separating pedestrians from truck traffic so you don't run the risk of getting run over. And they released a video last week that kind of showed in animated form, in animated form, easy for me to say, 
uh, what some of those changes might look like. Uh, the reaction has been essentially split right down the middle. Uh, people are either really excited about the potential for having something like this in Houston or really concerned that it is going to ruin what makes uh, that market special and drive out the people who currently shop there who are primarily Hispanic and primarily lower income. Uh, Nathan, I, I turn to you for this because, as we've discussed many times on the show, you're a fan of these various markets. When you travel, you seek them out. Um, did the animation that was released last week make you more excited for what's happening at the Houston Farmers Market or less excited? So I think it's really cool. Uh, aesthetically speaking only, it looked really neat. It looked like they took Discovery Green, um, that kind of design, and then built a farmer's market around it. It looked very cool. It did look a little hipsterish, which I guess is some of the comments. Um, it looked and, very, for, for whatever reason, the, the animator chose most of the, the skin tones for the animated people were Caucasian. And that seemed to upset people. So I, I, I watched it again this morning. I, um, I'd say 10% were, were other, um, other skin tones. So it probably should have gone higher than that, especially when you're taking over a market that's uh, definitely a minority run and minor, minority used. Um, but Hey, I'm sure it was a white guy who did it. Um, <laughs> right. I'm sure that, I'm sure that that was just, uh, it was easier to animate that way. Yeah, whatever. But the, um, aesthetically speaking, it looks pretty cool. Uh, obviously one thing I noticed was, um, in the animation, all of the tables had very little produce on them, but I'm sure that's an animation thing. Um, and I really like these markets. I really like the the ones you go to. Philadelphia has a, a really cool one. I can't think of the Redding name. Terminal Market. Oh, that's the Reading one. Yeah. Um, but it's it's it has a huge Russian section. Um, you know they they keep their kind of ethnic background to the market, even though it's been updated over the years. So I I hope that's what they do to to the Houston Farmers Market. I hope they keep a really nice Hispanic twist. I hope they bring in an influx of Vietnamese to it. Um, you know, maybe with the fish market they do that. Maybe with some of the restaurant type stuff. Maybe with just some of the the, the food stands or or the uh, the stalls or whatever they're going to sell. They, they bring right. in I mean, some Vietnamese influence. Right. The vast majority of the Asian grocery stores in the city are in and around Bel Air. Uh, call it Chinatown. Call it Asia Town. Obviously, Sugarland, Katie, Ranch 99 on I-10, but but inside the loop, uh, pretty much non-existent. So the idea that I, I agree with you, incorporating that component would elevate uh, what's at Canino's for sure. Yeah, um, I don't think there's any way around it. We're we're gonna lose some of the culture that's that's there by updating it. Uh, but there's a way that we could we can keep some of it, add some of the Houston kind of swag and culture and then also you know make it kind of a, a destination for Houston one one of the issues you I hear all these people complain about man they're gonna ruin the spirit they're gonna ruin the the culture uh, and then I ask them well when was the last time you went there oh I've never been there or, or oh it's been years which means I've never been there so you know what are you complaining about? Right, well, or on whose behalf are you complaining? Yeah, exactly. Right, your your objection is sort of theoretical if you're not 
uh, a patron. I, I mean, there was that there was that kind of nostalgia when when Astrodome closed, or not Astrodome, Astro World, right? Oh, yeah. I can't believe it's closing. When's the last time you've been there? Oh, it's been five years. Well, maybe that's why it's closing. Yeah, I went there a bunch as a kid, man. Place is awesome. <laughs> uh, once a year for me, maybe, and it's been at least three or four years since I've wandered Caninos. I like that El Balio uh, across the street. That's a a somewhat more regular destination for me. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been there in a while, um, purely because of location. Um, and, you know, it's me and my wife. We don't need, you know, fresh veggies that often. We go out to eat too much. If I, you know, wasn't so lazy and cooked more, then maybe. Right. Uh, but it's a, it's a really cool place. It could be a really, really great destination if it's done right. I really hope that uh, Chris and Kevin can can you know i think if it's up to them then it could be done really well uh but you know obviously they're consultants so they don't have the final say um but i think it has a really good chance of being really cool i think chris will have a passion of of not only keeping the really strong hispanic influence and hopefully keeping the really strong hispanic patrons but also bringing you know the the asian you know um kind of spirit of houston into it and then you know i would really like we have a really not only a big uh middle eastern part of houston but it's also growing maybe bring in uh some of that if we could you know have a you know some of these uh right everything that's on hillcroft yeah Mm -hmm. you know think about the the old uh phoenicia on westheimer that place was great um 10 years ago (laughs) yeah but 10 years ago before it fancied up when it was just like bags of things um Put that in, you know, the the market. Right. And and just to clarify for for people who didn't catch the first names, Chris Shepard uh, from Underbelly One Fifth, his business partner, Kevin Floyd, uh, have been retained by MLB to curate the food offerings at the new market. Uh, and it's a responsibility that they're they're taking very seriously and who exactly they invite and under what circumstances uh, will depend on the size of the spaces and the cost of the spaces, but but certainly two men with a, a real passion for uh, Houston's food scene and and a sense, I think, of what makes Caninos special. So I'm I'm optimistic from that standpoint. Yeah, it, I hope so. Do you know how many like kind of food stalls or restaurants? Or is that something they're not? No, they they really they they had to get through the design phase, uh, and they weren't there last summer when this was first announced. So I think uh, groundbreaking is supposed to start soon on the project, and hopefully that means the design will be finalized. And then once that happens, I think we're going to start getting some more announcements about who exactly is signing on to this. Uh, but, you know, the, the transformation is going to take place while the market is still operating. And so it's a somewhat laborious process. It probably won't be complete until the middle of next year. Yeah. Well, one, one thing that I, I hope that they kind of take to heart and remember is that um, don't make the whole place fancy. Don't make the whole place cool and, and you know, shiny. Uh, you go to Pike's Place, you go to Reading Market or the Chelsea Market, uh, you know, you've got your kind of like front, your up front, your place to take photos at. Really cool, you know, really well designed. But 90% of it is, is it's not shabby, but it's, it's, it's corny. It's a bunch of uh, kind of places for people to hawk weird stuff, you know, um, just, it's not, 
it's not shiny and perfect. It's yeah, it should be like a mall. Yeah, it should it, be like a market. Yeah, it's an oddball place. It's a place for weirdos who couldn't go anywhere else, and that's what makes it great. All right, and then I do just briefly want to note that uh, Fig and Olive, the Mediterranean restaurant with locations in New York, Chicago, D.C., and L.A., has announced that it will open in the Galleria next month. Nathan, I've never been to Fig and Olive. It seems to be fairly well thought of. Have you? I've never been. I'll give it a try. I'm not necessarily super pumped about it. But if it's great, I'll be pumped. I'm more interested in uh, Nobu, obviously. Right. So this is the first of four new restaurants opening in what used to be the Saks Fifth Avenue space. Uh, It will be followed by a uh, Mexican concept from Fox Restaurant Concepts, which is the owner of North Italian True Food Kitchen. It'll be followed by Nobu, the very famous uh, sushi restaurant with outposts all over the world. And then the Spice Route Company, uh, which is a very mysterious uh, Indian concept from a Dubai-based restaurant group um, that I've been pestering both the Galleria and their PR firm for more information about since roughly September uh, without getting a lot of answers about who's behind it and what they're up to. So that's very much TBA. But uh, in the last 12 months or so, Shake Shack has opened in the Galleria. Yawacha opened in the Galleria. Uh, Dining in the Galleria keeps getting better and better, which is good for everybody, uh, especially for the tourists who stay in and around it. Uh, That does it for the news of the week. We will be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? Nathan, for our restaurants of the week, I have two places I want to discuss with you briefly. The first is Willow's Texas Barbecue. It's a new food truck that serves at Big Star Bar in the Heights. Uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Willow Villa, Willow Villa Real. Uh, is a pit master who's been kind of up and coming for a little while now. He had a Sunday night pop-up at Grand Prize for a couple of years that that drew a following. He worked with uh, Russell Regals to serve barbecue at the uh, water park in Katy, and he also won Butcher's Ball a couple of times. We eat a fair amount of barbecue together. I would say we had a kind of typical up-and-down barbecue meal at Willow's Texas Barbecue, what do you think? Yeah, I would I would call it pretty okay. I guess is the best way to phrase it. So on the brisket, the I thought the bark or the seasoning was very good. The bark was not really there. It was a little under rendered uh, and it had dried out. I think from being held too long. Um, you could tell that there was potential on the brisket, but it wasn't there yet. Yeah, I the brisket was a disappointment. Um, and I've read other people raving about it. It had been recommended to me by some of the barbecue bloggers. So um, that's unfortunate. Yeah. So I talked to a, a friend who's a, a food writer in Houston who specializes in barbecue, if people want to guess who that is, um, who who went there a couple hours before we did on the same day and, and proclaimed it the top five in the entire city of Houston. Um, so evidently... Either he had a perfect piece of barbecue or we got the crap. I'm not sure which. Right. Barbecue is such a fragile thing. 
and it has to be held properly and sliced properly. And if, if he got the first cut off a of fresh brisket, it could have been magical, but uh, I know what we ate and it certainly wasn't. I thought the ribs were more promising. I thought the sides were good. Uh, I thought it was nice to see the collard greens. I thought they were well done. And the uh, Tex-Mex style charo beans were particularly tasty. Yeah, the beans were very good. Um, the collard greens were good. The sausage was kind of standard, I guess, jalapeno sausage. Yeah. I actually felt like they maybe not, maybe didn't have enough smoke on them. Um, but it could have been they were held a little too long and sweated them, sweated it out. The ribs were good. They were genuinely good. Yeah. Um, and then the brisket we've already talked about. Um, and it, it's frankly probably because it's in a food truck. It's hard to it's hard to sell enough to keep it fresh and you know pretty and you know. Yeah, and he's in an interesting location on 19th Street. In the Heights, I mean, Willow's Texas Barbecue is kind of right in the middle of where Gatlin's Barbecue is and where Pinkerton's Barbecue is. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to slam it based on one visit. And, and we'll certainly go back and, and hopefully it will be better. But at this point, it would be hard to say why anyone would choose uh, what Willow is doing over Gatlin's or Pinkerton's. Yeah, I mean, I'll definitely go back. I, I like I said, I thought the rub on the brisket was really good. I'm not sure what he was doing different, but it it had a really good flavor to it. And if if it had rendered right and it had you know gotten a really good crust to it, um, I think the brisket could have been very good. Um, and then the sides were very good. So I definitely want to give it another try. Maybe show up a little earlier. We were there like three thirty, so it could have just been a timing issue maybe show up at 11 instead right i right i that right you know and he serves all day and he's got a late night menu that he runs uh at big star bar for people who happen to be there and want a little sustenance but you know i i mean my my general attitude is i i recognize that barbecue is better closer to opening but i also feel like if you're open it should still be pretty good yeah well it's probably better he might do a couple a couple different sets so it might be might be better early and late right instead of at 3 30 yeah that that may be that's that's partly on us yeah all right and then uh i do want to discuss just briefly uh moxie's the sports bar that comes to houston uh via canada and uh and dallas uh moxie's took over the canyon cafe space at westheimer and post oak uh, we went in with kind of low expectations. The menu is kind of all over the place. Uh, it's got some Indian touches. It's got a little bit of sushi. It's got some raw items. It's got burgers and wings and steaks. Uh, but I, actually, I, I think we had a pretty good meal there. Yeah, for for what it is. For, uh, for, for where our expectations yeah. were and what it is, I think we had a pretty good meal. Let's preface that. For a sports bar you know, atmosphere, the food was pretty good. Um, and I liked the place. I would go back to watch a game for sure. The sports bars are tough for me because I really like to go to them to to watch games. My wife does too, but we we don't like to go to places where we get the the faux, faux, faux flirting, as I stumble to say. Um, so, you know, that place was, was cool. Uh, still has the, the cocktail waitresses, but they're not the type to like, Shoulder rub for tips. 
Uh, yeah, I mean they're they're friendly without being inappropriate, and they're dressed in dresses instead of like themey outfits that are make you know like politically incorrect. Yeah, and the the food was good. Um, I I don't think I got a burger, but I saw a couple and they looked pretty good. Yeah, no, I got you a, got a I got steak, steak and shrimp. Yeah, I got a steak uh, with uh, chimichurri on it. Chimichurri was a little heavy on the um, uh, little little light on the garlic. Sorry. Uh, but the uh, steak itself was good. The fries were good. And then I got a side of shrimp for, I don't remember the price, but it was really cheap. Uh, and the shrimp were good. I think it was like four bucks. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, I had to, I had to know they have a spicy tuna roll, uh, on the menu. I had to know it was basically uh, it was a fried, a fried California roll yeah. topped with, uh, chopped up tuna, um, in like a goju junk sauce, which was kind of weird. It it was spicy, it was legitimately not not like burn your palate or anything, but but a nice tingle. And then uh, again, because I can't resist ordering uh, culturally inappropriate food in uh, unusual contexts, uh, beef vindaloo, which they all very much warned us uh, how spicy it was, and it was definitely not spicy. Uh, I want to take the entire Moxie's management team to Himalaya and just tell Kaiser to turn loose and hurt them, so that at least they they understand what what spicy in Houston means. But again, it's a very stylish space. It's a very welcoming space. Uh, we're very close to March Madness at this point. Uh, and I would have no problem going there uh, to watch the tournament and have some wings and maybe a burger and a couple of beers. Yeah, the cocktails are much better than your normal sports bar. Um, you know, they're actually cocktails instead of, you know, a rum and coke or whatever uh, i don't remember the specifics to them but they had a they had a cocktail menu yeah they have an avocado gimlet that's kind of their signature thing yeah um so i think it was a cool place it's i've driven by it a few times since then it's been very busy uh it seems to be the the cool new hangout for the galleria yeah busy happy hour spot uh and and serves late night so if you happen to be in the galleria uh after about 10 11 o'clock when most of the other restaurants have shut down uh that is a place for food all right, that does it for the news of the week. I'll be right back with Scott Snodgrass and Clayton Garrett. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? I'm joined this week by Scott Snodgrass and Clayton Garrett from Loam Agronomics. They're throwing their first uh, chef fest this week out in Richmond, Texas. Scott, let me start with you. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Good morning. Clayton, thank you for coming. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Uh, Scott, let me just kind of start at the beginning. What What is Loam Agronomics? We're a uh, almost 300-acre vegetable farm, and we're in Richmond, Texas, in Fort Bend County, basically right between Katy and Sugarland. And uh, we grow vegetables. That's what we do. Then we sell them to people, hopefully for them to eat. And uh, the bulk of our sales are done through a CSA program, which stands for Community Supported Agriculture which is basically a vegetable subscription. People pick up a box from drop sites all around town every week. Uh, and then we sell also into the restaurant community uh, in Houston to a number of the restaurants, a bunch of folks that have been on your show. Yeah, and I met you at Indie Chefs Week. Mm -hmm. uh, we had uh, Ned Elliott on the show to talk about Indie Chefs Week. And of course, he will be at, at Chef Fest. Uh, who else are you selling to? What, what restaurants are you selling to that we might be familiar with? Yeah, we sell... Um, 
on the week to week, we've got a number of restaurants that are buying a bunch from us, but we sell to Presidio, Adam Doris's place in the Heights, um, Better Luck Tomorrow, and Theodore Rex, our pretty regular customers of ours, Cultivare. Um, a bunch of those guys around town, but we also have food trucks uh, that we sell a bunch to, El Topo Truck and Ripe Cuisine, uh, are people that purchase from us. And of course, people can find you every week at the Urban Harvest East Side Farmer's Market. Correct. Yep. Uh, Clayton, how did you become interested in farming? Well, I'm a third generation farmer. Uh, my grandparents uh, farmed like much of, you know, many Texans. Um, and uh, when my dad was kind of in the later part of his career, he started buying farms. He got interested in kind of working with my grandfather. Uh, so I've, I've kind of seen it from afar. We do something very different than what that conventional farming is. Uh, we we farm, our family farms cotton. So uh, organic vegetables is about as different as it could be from that. Uh, but that's kind of how I got started. And then, of course, with uh, our current projects, um, kind of an entree into a larger scale from gardening and up into large scale farming, which is what we're doing. Right. I mean, when I met you guys originally... Uh, I knew you as Edible Earth Resources, and you were doing custom gardens for homes. Uh, I think you did the garden at Cultivare, if I'm correct. Correct. Yeah. So, how did Edible Earth Resources get involved? How did Edible Earth Resources spin off Loam Agronomics? Well, we saw a lot of demand for um, projects at the commercial scale, and Edible Earth was really built for residential and, and restaurant. Uh, design and installation and, and management. And so uh, we split off uh, actually a couple of companies spun off. Agmenities, our company that manages farms for other people, especially where communities are involved. And then Loam is the vegetable farm. But I think we knew, we've known for a long time that that large-scale farming was something we were eventually going to be in. Uh, and I, I've farmed organic vegetables in the past, knew it was something I wanted to be involved in again as well. So, yeah, talk about just the, the challenges of farming in Houston in a, in a semi-urban environment. I mean, it, it's amazing to me, uh, having toured the farm last week, you know, you're basically not far from the intersection of the Grand Parkway and Highway 90, uh, inland that used to belong to uh, the Jester unit, the prison that's kind of famously associated with Sugarland. But, you know, then you're just you drive out in the middle of the field and then there's carrots and radishes. So so what what is that like? And, and is it different than farms that are farther outside the city? Well, the, the Sugarland prison. So it's the general land office's land uh, that we purchased the farm from. But they had been farming vegetables there for you know over 100 years for as long as people have been in the area, certainly. Um, and so. You know, one of the, the biggest challenge with farming in an urban area is just the access to land. Um, you know, we have a particular set of challenges in Houston with land, uh, with land uses, and, and certainly some of the flooding and everything that happens around here. So um, we were fortunate enough to come across um, this piece of property through kind of our contacts with Johnson Development, who's an incredible developer um, in Houston and around Houston. And um, we jumped on the opportunity and then, you know, the idea for the larger scale operation farm selling to restaurants um, was was something that kind of connected uh, with where we were in our process there. And then what are you growing at Loam currently? Like what, what can people what can people buy? Yeah, 
it's a this is an interesting time of year where we're still going strong on the cool season crops, um, but we're just starting to move into some summer crops. So we expect to have like cucumbers and those sorts of things starting here in the next three or four weeks. But right now we've got beautiful carrots coming out of the ground, all your root vegetables, beets, turnips, radishes, um, leafy greens, all like kale and mustards and lettuces. Uh, snow peas, cauliflower, broccoli. I mean, there's really, this is a time of year where there's a huge variety. I mean, everyone who shops at the farmer's market knows when you get to August, you've got a few options. It's basically squash and okra and a couple of other things you don't want to cook with that much. And the old farmer joke goes that by the time you get to the end of August, you you can't even drop off a crate of squash somewhere for free because people (laughs) just don't want it. They've already got plenty of it. So, uh, but those are the kind of things we have right now. Uh, And then I guess, are you doing... I mean, are you doing berries? Are you doing, uh, I mean, God, when I, when I think of, of spring, summer in Houston, you know, strawberries, tomatoes, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, well, well, for sure, we've got six acres of tomatoes going in this year, which is enough to feed a small army, which we don't plan on doing. But, um, but we will have plenty of tomatoes this year, peppers and eggplant. All that stuff is sprouted in the greenhouse and waiting to go in the ground. For sure. We will probably mess around with strawberries next year. We'll plant those in October and have harvests in early spring. Um, but then melons are the only fruit we do right now, and they're one of our favorites. And so we do, um, I think this year we're planting 23 different varieties of melons at the farm. And then, Clayton, I know that loam isn't officially certified organic yet because there's some regulations about length, but you're following organic practices What's that like again? Is that is that more difficult in an urban environment, or, or why did you choose to be organic specifically instead of conventional? Well, uh, they're they're so different. I mean, um, organic for us was really about kind of the goal for our organization. So um, we we're technically right now sustainable. Um, we're following organic practices. We have to follow those practices for three years. So we will be certified later this year. Um, and um, and the main philosophy behind organics is is really taking care of the environment in which the plant's growing in. So not not necessarily focusing on the plant itself, although that is a focus, but focusing on the health of the general environment. And it's not that different from um, you know human health or animal health. So we we really focus on the health of the soil by using practices that promote um, health, and then the plants thrive and, and and fundamentally taste better. I mean that's kind of ultimately what we're after. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, local, local produce is, is, is great. And, and I'm, and I'm all for, you know, decreasing our carbon footprint by not trucking in vegetables from California or other countries. But I mean, if it doesn't taste good, it's kind of like, what's the point? Yeah. And we, I remember the Houston uh, food policy work group met at Hay Merchant a couple of years ago, had a bunch of chefs and a bunch of farmers and other people sitting around. And one of, that was one of the topics of discussion was farmers saying chefs need to buy more local. And the point was brought up that like the point in local food is that it should be fresher and taste better. Uh, and then, and then the chef even has a little bit of control over exactly what they're doing, right? We, we will harvest a turnip at a specific size for a chef who's doing a specific thing with it. And then we're getting it to them, you know, 95% of the time, it is the day after the day of, or the day after harvesting that we're getting produce to them. And then are, have you started to work with chefs to grow specific crops for them? Because I know we had Austin Simmons on the show several weeks ago from Hubble and Hudson, and he talked about going to Europe and just being very impressed with the quality of the produce there. And I, I think he, like a chef like that would like to get 
specific things that maybe he can't find locally. Um, so are, are you at that kind of point where if a chef comes to you and says, I want this specific product, you can do that? Yeah, we're working with a bunch of chefs on those sorts of things. Uh, we're growing some unique things this year. Um, but all, it's not necessarily just that they want a new crop we don't grow because we, we grow what we would say is over 200 different crops every year. So it's a pretty wide range of the things that will grow here. Um, but sometimes it's just the unique part of it. Like we are, we are harvesting broccoli stalks. Like after we've harvested the broccoli crown, we have a chef who's interested in the broccoli stalks and doing some interesting things with that. Uh, we have other chefs who are looking for, you know, the seeds of plants or flowering parts of the plants rather than the traditional vegetable people are used to. And we, so we make those adjustments, um, but we are also growing specific crops for people. Um, we don't have anything right now that's exclusive that, that we grow just for someone and we don't sell on the open market. Um, but yeah, we do have some interesting crops and as long as a chef is willing to purchase it when we've got it, we're happy to take that risk and try to grow something new. Uh, and then Clayton, let me just ask you, I mean, it gets so hot here in the summer. How do you, how do you sort of account for the weather? Um, and of course, I mean, how did the farm do during the hurricane? Cause that seems like that would have been a real challenge. Yeah. Well, we get up earlier in the summertime for sure. So as soon as the sun's up, we're out there uh, and we end a lot earlier. And then, um, you know, maintaining health and, and drinking plenty of water is obviously one of the key things that we talk about with our teams and our, on our safety side. So, um, and then Harvey, we, we certainly, this is kind of the second year. We, we, this farm was in planning stages for two years and then we purchased the property and um, we'd been farming for roughly about a year when Harvey hit and we knew that in that first year, if, if we had a hurricane, we were, you know, it was gonna be rough for us. So, um, so it was, so it was, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, just like, you know, there's so many more people that had bigger challenges than what we were dealing with, but, um, our farm didn't flood it. It actually just succumbed to kind of disease pressure over time. So we just had so much water in the fields, the plants, just, just like we were talking about with organic practices, um, the soil just couldn't support uh, the health of the plants. And so the other part of August and kind of late August um, was that it was a transitional time for us anyway. The plants are already stressed. Everything's already in transition. Um, you know, our people and plants are, are stressed. And uh, so it was a rough time. So we, we lost uh, production for three months after that, roughly, as we got back into the fields and tried to cultivate again and all of that. Uh, and then right after that, and then right as you started cultivating again, it froze for four days. Yeah, yeah. It's been a great year. Yeah, <laughs> it was. We we tell people we we probably didn't pick the best time to start into farming, but at least we're getting our crash course uh, in the bad things that can happen right now. And so we're continuing to grow. We got a lot of new members joining the CSA and, and feeling good about the bright future. Well, well, good because that was going to be my next question: is <laughs> is how's that how's that part of it going? Are you finding a market for this stuff? Yeah, when we set out, we decided that what we didn't want to do was step into the the Houston uh, local food scene and compete with other existing vendors for the space um, because the reality is there's just really not that many people in Houston who are willing to support a farmers market on a weekly basis and actually do their grocery shopping there the, the urban harvest market is one of the few markets that actually puts a decent number of people there who aren't just there for the novelty who aren't just there to get breakfast and walk their dog but are actually coming to buy their vegetables for the week and spend twenty or thirty dollars at the market on vegetables. Um, and so we knew that what, what we needed to do if we wanted to scale up, because we're trying to be at a larger scale for a direct farm, uh, direct marketing farm, we knew that what we needed to do was expand the market. And so 
we've tailored our, our marketing and the way that we reach out to people to try and reach people who maybe are interested in local food or maybe buy organic at the grocery store but aren't really a part of the community yet. Uh, and, and I think to this date, we're pretty confident that we've, we've already doubled the number of people in Houston who are buying CSAs. Uh, and so we're, we're proud of that fact that we're folding new people into it and giving people kind of a neat uh, experience in local food. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting uh, thought about this because it's kind of like craft beer breweries don't want to poach from other craft beer breweries. They just want to steal from, you know, if they can convert a Bud Light drinker, that's, right. that's kind of a win, right? You don't need to steal from the people who are buying from a place like Atkinson Farms but if you or uh, Animal Farm. But but if you can convert the guy who goes to Whole Foods every week and buys organic produce from California, that that seems like a good opportunity for y'all. Yeah, if AB InBev has a farm, you yeah. know we're happy to take yeah. uh, <laughs> their customers away from them. Yeah. Um, and then Clayton, let me just ask you a little bit about Chef Fest. I know it's it's happening uh, this Sunday, March fourth. I'll, I'll certainly be out there. But just uh, tell people a little bit about kind of what the idea was behind creating an event that's going to happen. Not not specifically at Loam, but at, at Harvest Green, this new uh, residential development that's uh, right off the Grand Parkway. Well, uh, one, of, one of our companies, Agmenity, um, services the Harvest Green community. So we have a 12-acre. Um, again, it's not an organic farm, sustainable, working on organic certification um, farm. There's uh, goats and chickens and some great things out for the kids. Um, but we produce vegetables there. And uh, we decided this is our second year we've we've circled around kind of events that are out there that really showcase um, what a farm can be, which is a place of connection for us. So connection to, to from the food side with chefs to the community. Um, and so that was real thought behind it was how do we get people out here to, ex, you know, get on the farm and experience like this is an organic farm. Um, and, and then having folks out here for, you know, food and entertainment. So we're going to have a great band out there. We've got, some amazing chefs from, from this region, um, producing things that are interesting to them, you know, produce that's coming off the farm that's in season. Um, they have a little bit more time to kind of think about a way in which to connect. There's some great chefs that are going to do some really interesting things with, uh, open fire and cooking. We're calling it the baby Malman. We're going to put a little (laughs) Francis Malman style smoke ring out there at the farm. Yeah. I, I mean, really like, it's not overstating to say that you have some of the best chefs in Texas coming in from out of town to participate in this. Uh, as I said, Ned Elliott is coming. Uh, Matt McAllister from FT33 in Dallas is coming. Uh, Adam Brick, who was affiliated with APIS in, in Austin, will be there. Um, who else is coming? Andrew Weishart from Contigo and Chacon in Austin is coming down. Another one of Austin's kind of heavy hitters. Uh, Robert Lyford from Patina Green in McKinney who owns uh, the Food Network title of Best Sandwich in Texas. Uh, he's going to be coming down, but he's also one of the more avid supporters of local food and, and is really, really, really involved with the farmers in his area. Um, and then from Houston, we have Jill Bartolome from McKee, uh, who just got nominated for, or just was a semifinalist for a Beard Award. Um, Monica Pope, who's been on that list before. And then we have uh, Stephanie Hoban from Ripe Cuisine, who's often set up the Urban Harvest Farmer's Market as a food truck. Uh, Chris Zettelmoyer from Renegade Food Truck, which functions down in Richmond. Um, but he's a fantastic chef as well. 
and then we have a, a couple more folks on there as yeah, well. Yeah, Becky Mastin is coming. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Bake Bar. Mm-hmm. She's going to do all of our desserts for us. And uh, I think uh, Ara's coming, right? Oh, Chef yeah. Ara from yep. our neighbor. Harlem Road. Yeah, Fantastic right down the street. Neighbor. Yeah. He's been an incredible supporter of us for a long time, and, uh, and we of him. Yep. He's going to be a, a great addition to this year's um, lineup. And then we have Little Kitchen, uh, which is Jason Kerr and Becca Rayenga. Uh, who are coming out to cook as well, and we're excited about their dish. There's a, there's a bunch of people doing really interesting dishes. I've been putting menus together. And we're gonna yeah, start so so just tell people those. a little bit about because uh, I know they had to. We're talking about this. They've they've had to submit their dishes. So yeah. So are there two or three that you're just like really excited about? Well, I mean, R is doing. Uh, you know, he's he's going with kind of a standard uh, brisket and coleslaw. But when Ara does it, we're always excited uh, to have that. Um, there's a couple of folks who are doing um, who are going to do uh, pork riettes. Um, and uh, with different treatments completely, so we're excited about those. Matt McAllister is actually doing uh, what he calls a chicken ham, uh, which he's going to cure chicken quarters, I guess thighs, uh, like he would a ham, and then uh, he's going to have those out there, and he's going to smoke a bunch of vegetables that are going to go with it and do, I think he said, like a charred brassica oil that will be drizzled over the top of it. Uh, That should be really cool. Um, We've got Andrew Weishart is doing a smoked grouper, so I think he's our only seafood um, menu item. Um, but then everyone, you know, uh, everyone's really highlighting vegetables, which is a little bit, you know, we're pretty similar to Butcher's Ball and the kind of cadre of chefs that we're bringing out. But Butcher's Ball has a very specific meat focus. And uh, as a vegetable farm, you know, we've tailored ourselves towards the vegetable side. So there's a lot of featured vegetables, while I think that only only two of our 11 chefs are doing a vegetarian dish. Okay. But uh, tickets are 75 bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, on sale now, $90 at the door. Um, like I said, I will be out there. I'm very much looking forward to this. Uh, as long as the weather is nice, it should be a really good uh, Sunday, especially for people who are in the food community. Uh, Nathan Ketchum, do you have questions about what's going on at Loam? So uh, just a general kind of farming question. Uh, you guys are attempting to be certified organic. Mm-hmm. So I know there was kind of a, a Thing for a while where everybody was claiming to be organic and uh, kind of put the title on anything they wanted. What does organic mean to you? To you guys, what do you know? What do you do to be organic? Well, we take it very literally because it's actually the the term is actually protected by law. Yeah, no, and so no. the USDA, you know, requires that if you use the term organic to describe your products, they have to go through the certification. Um, but maybe on the sustainability side of things. Um, you know, Clayton talked a little bit about that earlier, but for us, it's really a focus on the health of the soil. There's so much research being done right now, and we're seeing kind of a huge paradigm shift in not just agriculture, but horticulture as well. Uh, just as we're learning about the microbiome that exists in our stomachs and digestive systems, right, and that there's more bacteria on our bodies, there's more bacterial cells on our bodies than human cells. Um, we're learning the same thing about the soil, and that the soil is the great digester, and we have to treat it that way and care for those uh, those microbes so that they can, in fact, provide the fertility the plants need, which, frankly, in the end, makes things much cheaper for us than if we were buying chemicals in. Uh, it makes things safer for our staff, for the people who are consuming our vegetables. We'll have fewer concerns with toxicity on the farm. Um, and it also, in the end, what the research is starting to show now is if you handle this well, that you'll, you'll actually end in a place where your yields are higher than they are with chemical inputs. You do that by, like, switching crops out of different areas or...? We have a focus on, on cover cropping and trying to be uh, minimal or no-till. And so that disruption of the soil is what does most of the damage to the biology. And so 
Uh, we've bought specialized equipment that works uh, where we can basically grow a cover crop, mow it down to a mulch, and then plant right in that uh, instead of having to tear the soil up every time we want to put some new seeds in the ground. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, and, and I will say I, I did get to tour at least part of the farm. It was uh, a little muddy the day that I went out, but mm -hmm. I do have a, a spectacular picture of uh, carrots and radishes and, and on my Instagram feed and it's usually a very meat heavy place and it, it got a, <laughs> it got a good reaction uh and and so i do think that there's uh a growing appreciation for this kind of stuff and and you know i'm i'm excited that we get to show it off on sunday a little bit uh clayton what do you what do you think is kind of next for loam i mean how do you want to if you'll pardon the pun grow this uh yeah. over the next couple of years uh certainly We'd like to be in some more restaurants. You know, our wholesale uh, will grow as we grow. Part of part of our challenge is just um, in a farm, it, everything has to come together at the same time. So we have to be um, have our production facility in line, be able to get into you know make the production, um, then get it to people in a way that they can accept it. Uh, so just kind of some traditional growth. Um, we'd also love to really spread the message of our CSA program and have people out to the farm. So one of the things we've, we really haven't done just because of the kind of beginning stages that we're in is, is have a lot of people at the farm and do on-farm events. And so Chef Fest is one of those uh, beginning places, although it's up the road from us, um, in which we can show people a little bit of the area in the neighborhood. And then, um, hopefully have some groups out to the farm, uh, in the not too distant future. So part of this for us is really, is really community building in a way that's a little bit different than a lot of traditional companies get to do. So we, we're really looking forward to kind of having those enriching relationships with, uh, not only the, the chef and food community, but kind of the broader community and, and hopefully having the farm serve as a nexus of those two places. Yeah, and, and I've certainly had the opportunity to attend a, a farm dinner at an animal farm and an outstanding in the field event at, at Jolie View. And I, I do think that there is something about being out there in the field and seeing where the food is grown and, and meeting the people who grow the food that, that makes it more real. I mean, even, you know, it's certainly to go to the farmer's market on Saturday and, and to see the people and, and see the product. That's a, that's a very important first step. Uh, but, you know, it even a, a couple of years ago, there was that scandal in Florida about uh, farmers market vendors buying conventional produce and selling, you know, products from Mexico. Uh, you know, that's not what's happening here. I mean, you can you can you can visit loam, you can see this stuff, um, and it it just it makes my appreciation for it um, that much stronger. I'd say. Um, so hopefully, uh, dinners like that are in the future and uh nathan you have one more question then we're we're gonna yeah just feeding off of that i, I really like things like loam kind of growing up and uh you know as americans we we tend to kind of uh we're, we're growing away from our food we we don't have a connection to where our food comes from we just uh you know pick it up at the grocery store and eat it so uh you know knowing uh, you know where our vegetables come from or with 44 farms we know where our meat comes from mm -hmm. or black hill you know, it's it's really nice uh, these local places where we know where everything uh, comes from. So if you can have a chance to get out there and uh, you know meet the people who are making your vegetables, you know, and then you can buy them from them. It's a it's a good opportunity. Definitely uh, try it. And then restaurants buy from them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that's the big takeaway. 
All right, gentlemen, we have uh, reached the part of the show that I like to call the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Clayton, let me start with you. What's your favorite crop? Uh, I'm, I'm loving our carrots that are coming out of the field right now. But um, but as a general crop, I, I mean, tomatoes are amazing, you know, uh, fresh tomatoes. So I'll, I'll say two answers. How about All, right. That? All right, that's fair. <laughs> Scott, how about you? I'm going to follow the rules, uh, and, uh, and I'll say um, melons, because, and specifically the musk melons, so what people think of as a cantaloupe or a honeydew, um, because uh, amongst all the things that you can eat from the grocery store and eat fresh out of the ground, uh, melons just seem to have the greatest difference for me. Like uh, when you get them at the grocery store, they're just devoid of all the wonderful spice notes that you can get out of a melon that's coming out of some healthy soil. All right, Scott, what's the first band you ever saw in concert? Uh, that was actually Chevelle, and it was way before they were big. Uh, it was back, they were actually a Christian band when they first started. And uh, I saw them at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, uh, back in the 90s. All right. Clayton, how about you? Uh, Horde Fest, 96, in the Woodlands. It was Dave Matthews, uh, Lenny Kravitz, Rusted Root, and Blues Traveler. Was, oh, man. Very nice. It was a fantastic show. Uh, Clayton, what is your fast food guilty pleasure that comes from a drive through uh, probably El Rey. I don't eat a ton of fast food, but they're uh, kind of a good, good in between. <laughs> Scott, how about you? Uh, I'll, I'm a sucker for um, for the tacos at Jack in the Box mm. late night. That's a great. It's answer. a common answer. Yeah, yeah. I am. Uh, Scott, who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? This is a tough one. Clayton and I have been talking about this for like three yeah, or four days now, alert. trying to nail this down. Yeah. Uh, but it's really yeah, brought up David a lot Kemp of was completely that was unprepared. Smart. Yes. Very yeah. smart. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we, Game uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, he wasn't, I guess, an institution long, long term here, but I had a chance to meet him a few times. And Shane Battier, I think, oh, that's would be my, yeah, that's yeah. my favorite. That's a solid answer. Yeah. So uh, I have to go Milo Hamilton on this one because. Uh, I just, he's just the voice, you know, being in a radio studio right now, right? Right. Uh, but uh, the voice of my childhood. But if I weren't going to go with him, I was going to go with Tony Eusebio, who was uh, <laughs> the backup the catcher, catcher <laughs> yeah. for, a ten, for a decade, who had a beautiful swing. Um, and then Clayton, where's your... answer? <laughs> no, no, you're allowed to prepare. These are not trick questions. We've enjoyed the podcast, so... That's uh, and then Clayton, where's your favorite place to get a taco? Um... We, we've got a little place down the road from us, from our office, um, Los Dos Hermanos. They, they do a great job, and it's just, uh, we, I think it's part of it's just enjoying the folks who are there. Uh, How much did life. they pay you for that? Oh, nothing, <laughs> I mean. Well, with what they're charging for tacos, they're, well, not, they're yeah, not paying for advertising. Paying. Yeah. <laughs> Scott, how about you? Uh, there, and I, I don't know the name of it, but there's a little taco truck in front of the fireworks store on North Park in Kingwood, where I live. Uh, and I love to take my girls over there on Saturday morning and grab some tacos. All right. Well, thank you. These were very good. Uh, Scott, just tell us uh, what the website is for Loam Agronomics and Chef Fest. Yeah. LoamAgronomics.com and ChefFestHouston.com. And of course, I will have links to those in the Culture Map article that accompanies this podcast. Uh, you can follow Nathan Ketchum on Twitter at H-Town Food Junkie. Still, I haven't shamed him out of that yet. Uh, I'm lazy, man. Shame. <laughs> Loam Agronomics uh, and Chef Fest both have Instagram accounts that you can find on their websites. You can follow me on Twitter at E. Sandler, on Instagram at Eric Sandler. This is your periodic reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on both 
uh, iTunes and Google Play. We have links to that in every Culture Map article that accompanies this podcast. Uh, your comments are always welcome. Uh, you can comment on the podcast and rate it. Uh, you can send me an email with questions, comments, or criticism. I am Eric, E-R-I-C, at culturemap.com. And, of course, keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week with Aaron and Patrick Feaches. <laughs>